Bibles to Mark chapter 8. And it is our prayer that, that you know Christ as Savior. And it is also our desire that if you don't, please trust him today. If you say, I need some more information. I'm not sure what it means to look and live. I don't know what that, that faith looks like then please put your faith in Christ or ask somebody today. Let's have a word of prayer as we get started this morning. Father, we acknowledge that sin left the human race blind to your greatness, to your goodness. Today, in 2024, in Ohio, you are giving sight to the blind. Someone today is turning from their sin and trusting in the Savior. We rejoice in that. Someone here may need to hear. They need to see salvation through Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone. All of us need to see better who you are. All of us need to see who we are, what we need, how we need to trust you better in all things. Help us walk by faith and not by sight. We want to declare Jesus. We want to show him better today than yesterday. And Lord, we pray for our missionary family this morning. They need your grace. They need your power to press on in faithfulness. Help them remember that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to, the, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So protect them, protect their family, most importantly, protect their testimony. We here at Westerville Bible Church this morning need to remember that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And apart from the work of of your spirit, our witness is stupidity. That's what it seems like to the very people we are trying to share the gospel with. We aren't sent with lofty speech or wisdom. The message we receive, the message we give is Jesus Christ and him crucified. So thank, thank you for the ability to see and thank you for the enabling to grow in faith that we may see you better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The account that we have in Mark chapter 8 is pretty straightforward. And it's very significant as well, if you stop and think about it. It's so simple, this account, that a child or an adult just scanning at first reading can appreciate it. Hey, a blind man was healed. And it is also something that can yield marvelous truth that as we mine it by faith, as we dig deeper, we say, boy, I know more than I did before. So we are, as I've said before, we're in Mark chapter 8 at pretty much the midway point of the gospel we start seeing a, a significant change in the ministry of Christ. And there become, as we will see again, there are fewer miracles and there's more talk about the coming death of Christ. 
And it's very, very arresting. For some, it's very off-putting, very offensive. Jesus has been in Gentile territory. Remember, he went to Tyre and then Sidon. Then he comes along, skirts along Mount Hermon, and he ends up in those, that region of Decapolis. Now he's up in the, about the most northern part that you can get of, of Israel. And he is doing things that cannot be explained away. They can say he does it by the power of Beelzebub, but they can't look at it and say, that guy didn't really get healed. That guy can't really see. It was so convincing and yet not convincing to those who were in blind unbelief. The cross is coming for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the disciples need to grasp, have a full understanding. They need to be taught some last minute lessons because they're going to be sent out to represent this Savior. To stand and give their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so everywhere that Jesus goes is critical. Every word is carefully chosen. Everything that he does shows the power of God. And the disciples especially need to grasp a hold of this. And all the while, it seems mysterious to us, Jesus is going to be doing less and less in Galilee. More ministry. He's not done yet, but less and less in Galilee. The healing that we read of in Mark chapter 8, in verse 22, tells us that it took place, they came to Bethsaida. They're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. We'll have more to say about that city, Lord willing, next week on the second part of this message. But I've been taught most of my life that Bethsaida was on the northern shore of Galilee, and it might be. But we're not convinced anymore that this is the exact city. It didn't, we have not found a, a, a sign that says, Welcome to Bethsaida, population 480. You know, nothing like that quite yet. And it comes up frequently in the Gospels. Peter and Andrew were from there. When Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee and, and walked on the water. The next place he landed was Bethsaida. But the location is not so clear. By the way, a, a group of archaeologists and students from the University of Nebraska, that should be suspect right there. You know, I'm saying that for a pastor friend of mine from Nebraska. But um, they have been doing excavating almost every summer since 1991. They have published their report at a place called Etel, and it's called the Bethsaida Excavation Project. You would think that it's, that's a slam dunk. They know what they're talking about. However, in November of 2023, just recently, uh, in biblical archaeology, there have been some things that have been coming up that we can say, I, I don't know that... It, we know where Bethsaida is anymore. They've been working under something called the Center for Holy Land Studies. They've been working at a different site since, 2020, since 2014. They have visited, they have excavated, they have log, logged their findings at a place called El Araj. And they said that there is significant Roman, ancient Roman 
culture and material that found there. So where is Bethsaida? I can't tell you for sure. I can tell you what happened there by the power of God's word. It's, uh, it's, it's an important stop on the way to Caesarea, which is a, an, a, an important stop on the way, chapter 9, to the, to the Mount of Transfiguration. It's another stop that the Lord purposely, nothing is accidental. He's choosing every location, who he talks to, what he says, what is done, and the impression that they are left with are all by the deliberate choice of God. Now, we're talking about the blind sea, and you say, I think you made a mistake. I remember as a child being puzzled when my dad used to tell me about the blind man who picked up his hammer and saw. I didn't get it either for, for a while. The blind are seen. I'm listening through the, the Gospels, and in Luke, another account of a blind man who's made well. In Mark, in, in Matthew, in John, over and over and over. We're looking at what I'm going to call a two-step healing. Some will tell you that it's two miracles. doesn't matter a whole lot. You remember when um, John, Jesus' cousin, sent some men, some of these disciples from John came, and they said, are you the Messiah? And he told them to go back to John with this report, the blind receive their sight. Do you remember how in John chapter 9, one of my favorite chapters in that book, of the, the blind man who from his youth, I think he was born blind, it says, and the Lord heals him. And the Pharisees and scribes, they can't get over it. We're not sinners like you are. This man was born blind because he's, he's a sinner. You're, you were born in sin. And his exchange, if you're not familiar with that, go back and read that today. It's just marvelous how he, he puts them down in a polite way of saying, I don't know where, you don't know where he's come from, but I know what he did. I don't know his name, but I know what he did. How can somebody do this except they be God? I love this statement in John. He says, John 9, 25, This I know, that once I was blind. Do you know the rest of it? But now I can see. Folks, I hope that that is something you can say spiritually about your own condition. I hope that that is your own testimony. I once was blind, not a little bit. I was in the dark. The lights were shut out. And the only reason I can see is not because I'm so sharp or smart, but because God is so gracious. I wonder, after reading this account and others, if the blind people in Tyre and Sidon were not treated better than the blind people in Israel. Because in Israel... In ancient times, a person who was blind must have had a curse on them. Must be because of sin. Must be something wrong. And blind people who were being brought to Jesus and who were being healed, people took notice because, frankly, folks, this didn't happen before or after Jesus. The doctors didn't heal the blind. The Pharisees wouldn't even touch the blind. 
and Jesus comes in contact, touches and heals the blind. He breaks all the rules. A blind person wasn't going to be healed in ancient times by putting a little ointment in their eye. You know what one of the common ointments was? It was a mixture of, I think, of honey and, you say, not bad so far, and blood. Okay, maybe I'll just keep the blindness. But, but uh, someone who touched your eyes, rubbed ointment, or spit in your eyes, that, that wasn't going to heal you. There were concoctions aplenty that abounded in that day. Remember the woman who was born with, had this, uh, this issue of blood, and it said that she'd given all her money, she'd used up all her reserves. Well, as we read this account in Mark chapter 8 that I'm going to read right now, I find myself asking three questions that I'm going to ask you to read with me. Let's read at verse 22. As they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man. I want you to notice, if you can, three different manner or examples of Jesus touching him. The Pharisees wouldn't come anywhere close. Jesus touches him in three ways. Jesus took him by the hand led him out of the village and when he had spit in his eyes and here it goes again laid his hands on him he asked do you see anything and he looked up and he said I I see people but they look like trees walking then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again the third touch and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly and he sent him home saying do not even enter the village. Well, we're accustomed on a Sunday when I'm reading from Mark, a lot of times I say, no, I need you to turn to Matthew 16. I need you to turn to Luke because there's some things that those two accounts recorded on this miracle that Mark didn't say. It's unusual to find something that Mark records that the others don't say much about or anything about. We have one of those cases here. Mark, remember we said last week, has a whole different gear. He's constantly saying, and immediately they went here. And immediately Jesus left and, and went to this area. He's moving the action along. But he's also taking the ministry of Christ into a whole new gear. Fewer miracles. More of that sobering talk about his death. Jesus had rebuked his disciples back in verse 18. Remember when he, he had just fed 4,000 plus? And the disciples are saying, oh boy, we got in the boat. We only brought one loaf of bread. Now what? Jesus says, do you have eyes and you don't see? Do you have ears and you don't hear? How, how is this? I think that's important to retain that that's the context with this miracle that we're about to see. I think Jesus is healing and healing a man with a certain disease, and healing in a certain way with the disciples watching and for them to go, oh, that's us. I see what he's trying to tell us. So, it would give evidence that they needed more faith. You know what the disciples knew? From a childhood, 
From their childhood, they had been taught like Psalm 146 and verse 8 that says, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Who does it? Who opens the blind? Who opens their eyes? The Lord does it. And so for Jesus to go around doing that would leave people with the, uh, that were connecting the dots. Surely this is God. The Almighty can restore sight. And they're watching Jesus on a weekly, maybe daily basis, give the blind their sight, and they're connecting the dots. So why would Mark include this account in the short gospel? I think it's primarily for the disciples. Sometimes he would do things in a certain way that would instruct the crowd. Sometimes he answers or does things in a certain way that seems to aggravate the leaders. In this case... Jesus has come from that northern territory, Gentile territory with his disciples, where he's been having intense lessons with them, but he's still teaching them. And he can refer back to, why can't you see? Why can't you hear? Watch me heal, heal this man. See what you learn from this. Here's the second question. Why would Jesus heal this man in this way? If you had an ailment and I came up to you and said, if you let me spit on that, I think it'll go away. Would you allow me? It's holy spit. No, it's not. We haven't forgotten in chapter 7, verse 32, where Jesus takes a, a, a man who is deaf and he puts his fingers in his ears and, he, and after having spitting, touched his tongue. What is going on here? A man who would not have been touched by most, it's touched by Jesus. Jesus touched his life. And again, the power is not in the saliva. If it was, you would have people today that would be saying, um, you know, you've got saliva that you could put in your aerator and it diffuses through the room. Uh, they would have, it would be one of the essential oils that you would have to have. Listen, folks, the power was not in, in the saliva, but in the, the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had come. People observed. They watched. They could not dispute what was done, so they attributed it to the worst possible source. So why a two-step thing? Let, let's remember, Jesus could speak to a storm on the Sea of Galilee and the waters. How long did it take them to subside? It says immediately. Jesus could speak to a to dead Lazarus and he became living Lazarus instantly. So why a two-step process? As I said, Bible students are kind of divided onto, as to whether these are two separate miracles or one miracle and two, two steps. Uh, I, this is what I know from our text, that the first step, the first part of this was to restore his ability, the physical eyes of the man. The second step is enabling the man's blind mind to be able to comprehend what he's looking at. 
Remember those, uh, those puzzles? For some of you, you love to do them. Others, you were frustrated and you said, this is stupid, I'm never doing it again. They were called the magic eye. You would have this look like a scrambled photo and your binocular vision was supposed to be able to sort this out. You would, you would, some people would say you hold it right up to your eye or you cross your eye and then you, you pull it away and you can see, oh, I see the picture in the picture. If you couldn't, you said it's, it's genius that I can't. You know. If you could, you said it was a spiritual gift, but I, I never had time for those three, 3D stereo images, which means I, I couldn't see it either. But folks, our Lord was not limited in what he could do. Luke 137, 4, with God, nothing shall be impossible. Genesis 18, 4, 14 says, is anything too hard for the Lord? What's the answer? No. So sometimes Jesus healed, as I said, in a certain way, to get the attention or to make a statement to the Pharisees or to the crowds. This time, it's with the disciples in focus. Was there an incompleteness in this? Let me ask you, was there a limitation? There are actually some, I was telling my wife this morning, there are actually some who, when they study this, they say, well, Jesus came across something that he couldn't fix right away. That doesn't fit with Scripture. No. Well, you and I look at this and we say, why did Jesus do this miracle in two steps instead of just speaking, instead of just walking by and touching him? He spits in his eyes. He asks a question. Then he finishes it. In verse 23, Jesus asks him, again, is it to remove ignorance in the Lord? When Jesus says, do you see anything? Jesus knew exactly what he could see. Jesus is referring, I think, back to verse 18 when he asked the disciples, having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And all of this holds out hope to these disciples that we have this incomplete, we have a, a spiritual myopia, a myopic condition that we're so nearsighted that sometimes the Lord tells us these things and we say, I, I don't, is, and then they would argue among themselves. Is he talking about this or this? Here's the third question. Why would Jesus restrict the healed man? You don't go back to that village. Why those instructions? Earlier in chapter 7, verse 36, he told a whole group of people not to speak of this. Why would the Lord tell people who have something really exciting to talk about? And he says, don't talk about it. There's a reason for this. I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And I'm going to read some verses beginning at verse 20. Jesus had performed miracles. Jesus had talked about what his kingdom was going to look like. Jesus had preached and told who he was, that he came from the Father. And there are people in Galilee who had known him since he was little. He had come through their village many times. They heard multiple opportunities. They knew who he was. They knew what he had done. They refused to believe. Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities 
where most of his mighty works had been done. Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, there's our city, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heaven? You would be brought down to Hades for... If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it, it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Ultimately, they did not believe. Some would have said, well, I, you know, I, I haven't believed yet, but I'm not in unbelief. They were locked in indifference and apathy. How do you have Jesus, who is from your region, who's doing things that had never been done there before, and you go, you know, not yet. I'm, I'll come back tomorrow. A little bit more fish and bread, a few more miracles. Maybe you could win me over. So Jesus withdraws his blessing from them. It's a judicial hardening. It's a blindness that he's leaving them in this blindness. And, and he leads the, the blind man. I, I, I find it interesting in the first verse of our text. He leads him out of the village. They bring to him a man, probably leading him by the arm. Some of the religious leaders would have said, you're touching that blind guy? And Jesus puts his, that man's arm on, hand on his arm, leads him away, and heals him. And Jesus tells him not to go back to that village. Verse 26. The judgment, according to Matthew eleven twenty and following, had, had already been cast. There will be a time where God will pull his presence and his blessing away in an act of judgment on unbelief. So Jesus seems to, in this region, withdraw his ministry from communities, some of these major cities, but he's still not done individually taking somebody like this blind man that was brought to him, lead him away even more secluded, taking him aside and doing something on an individual basis. Folks, Jesus healed from disease, but Jesus' primary reason for coming was not to be a sensational healer, Jesus, when he found that people were healed, he didn't set up a shingle and put up a tent and, and say three weeks of revival meetings until, until it all dried up and the offerings died down, then he moved on. No, Jesus did not come primarily to heal, but to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen? He came to be our substitute. And I believe in my heart that this miracle was not meant to impress thousands, but it was meant to impact 12. That those disciples at a certain point said, he's talking about us, our condition, our blindness, and what they saw and what Peter is about to say 
next week, same channel, same time, I hope, as we complete this message, are connected. The master provides for them a a glimpse, I think, of his future messianic reign and rule. Write down a couple of references from Isaiah. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Isaiah 29, 18. There it talks about how in the millennium, the Lord will heal blind eyes. The Lord's coming to rule, not for a day, for a thousand years. And it will be glorious. And the Lord's telling his disciples, the one who will bring in that period of peace and prosperity and healing is standing before you now. Remember Peter Next Sunday is going to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And flesh and blood had not revealed this to him, but it was the agency of the heavenly father that had brought Peter to that point. Well, let's wrap this up by saying that this miracle, this chapter, this whole gospel of Mark holds out before us in very convincing fashion, the authority of God in Jesus Christ. Who else can spit on the eyes? Who else can make a man who has never seen and now is able to see images and can't figure out what the... How would you know? And now the Lord makes it so he can see perfectly. So what the Lord does in one or two Or if he chose to in five steps, it doesn't take away the fact that he is God. Jesus wasn't struggling here. Jesus wasn't having a bad day. It was intentionally for those disciples. And there's that stern warning that we read about. Woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum. I've walked in some of those cities. And felt nothing but broken hearted I'm sure other people were taking pictures and it's supposed to be beautiful and I just remember feeling a sickness in my stomach thinking of the unbelief and now they're looking for another Messiah I've told you some of you this before standing in front of the wailing wall and our guide pointed out if you'll turn this way there's a, a yellow banner and it said in Hebrew that they were it called out a man by name and they're calling on him to announce that he's the Messiah. Well, that's pathetic. Who is this man? Oh, he's a Jewish rabbi in New York and he's 80-something years of age. That's what they're, they're trying to convince them. I'm sure that's been 20, 30 years ago. He's, that man's dead by now. You're tra- taking a, a liberal rabbi in New York and saying, please be the Messiah. Folks, that's pathetic. And having a city like Bethsaida, Capernaum, that Jesus walks around and does these miracles and they go, I don't know. Not convinced. I'm, I'm neutral. There is no neutrality. We are born hostile against God. And the residents of Bethsaida, they they knew his teaching, they knew his power, they didn't know his salvation. But unlike those at Bethsaida, you know what? The disciples could see. They heard Jesus. They saw what Jesus did. They were like 
this man in, in stage one. I see trees, people like trees. Lord, there's still another work. Lord, fix my unbelief. Grow me in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help me to see. That was a prayer they could have said and we can say today. They knew that Jesus had power like no one they'd ever known. They had left their businesses, their boats, and followed him. But you know what? They also demonstrated some confusion and need of clarification. We'll see next week not only Simon Peter's great confession, but we'll, then we'll see the disciples' grand confusion. They just, they don't get it. You, we want to take them and shake them. But you know what? Jesus patiently shines into the, the darkness, into their confusion. He shines a bright light. I wish I could tell you Peter got it. Peter was willing to cut off an ear, deny the Lord. The Lord was doing a work on them. Aren't you glad to be able to say, you know what? I once was blind, but now I see. But I have to tell you, I read passages, I see what the Lord's doing, and sometimes I have to say, it looks like trees walking. I don't get it. Is it me or you, Lord? No, we don't say that because we know it's, it's us. Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. Well, we don't need one more church in Westerville or any city in Ohio that is full of people that say, I, I'm, I've come to get what I want. I've come to entice Jesus to give me what I think I want or what I need. We see Christ who, as it says in Hebrews 10, 12, when he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. We say we preach Christ and him crucified. We've gathered not to get what we need in our interpretation right now. This is my physical need. The Lord, this is my financial need. Make my problems go away. No, we say, Lord, show me more of yourself. Show me the enormity of the price that you paid for my sin. And we see Jesus, who is God, whose enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Amen. We see a great Savior. And our neighbors and our friends need a Savior. They don't need a religion. They don't just need a church. They don't need a, a religious friend or a club. They need a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And what, what do we need? We need to see that Christ is doing a work in us. We need to be able to say, you know what? Even though I, I marvel that I can't see better, I'm so thankful that the Lord is improving, working on me, that things are starting to come into focus. And boy, when I get to glory, I'm going to have a new set of glasses. Uh, things will, will make a lot more sense. So I've got three questions. Let me ask you these questions, and then we will close in a word of prayer. Who... Have you put on your arm 
And you said, I, I, don't, I can't make your problem going away. But uh, I'll bring you and maybe we'll even lower you down through the roof of the building and, and we'll, we'll sit you right in front of the one who can fix you. Sometimes you do want to grab somebody by the arms. You, you do want to lower them down right in front of Jesus. You do want to bring the blind. But befriend them. Build what we sometimes call redemptive relationships. Who are you? say, I haven't led anybody to Christ. Who are you praying for? Who are you witnessing to? Let's not let ourselves off the hook easily here. Second question. How are you growing in the knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus Christ? The disciples needed an act of God to help them see him better. So that they went from, we only have one loaf, come on, to this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You say, well, I'm reading through the Bible in a year. So am I. Wonderful discipline. But what are you doing to grow in the knowledge? Because you can read words and skim over and check off boxes and it means nothing. How are you growing in the knowledge and love of Christ? What ways are you surrendering even this week? How have you submitted? How have you been broken? Of what have you repented this week? How are you seeing the Lord teach you and grow you where you say, I'm seeing victory and I give God all the glory? And third question, how should we adore the Savior who is not afraid to touch the sinner and lead them to himself? Maybe that's a good discussion question at lunch today. I like to give you homework sometimes. But to ask yourselves, you know, how should we appreciate the Lord who touched somebody that no one else would touch? Who had, he couldn't just be sympathetic and touch them. You know, I'm not just saying put your arm around somebody today. So I was praying for you. That, that, that can be encouraging. As long as it's not put on. As long as it's genuine. But when you look at your Lord Jesus Christ. And you say. What a savior. What a savior. That he would embrace the likes of me. And save me. Heads bowed. Eyes closed. I'm very grateful for you coming and I'm grateful for the Lord being here with us today and hopefully he is convicted and encouraged and touched hearts if you say I, this is my first time at your church or this, I, I've, I haven't missed a Sunday <coughs> in 10 years we're thankful all the same that you're here but let me ask you is there evidence that you walk with Christ is there evidence that he has put his spirit in you? Is there evidence that you have repented of sin and trusted the Savior and turned from your works and believed in the only begotten Son of God? Would you do that right now? Put your faith in Christ. Turn from your quote-unquote goodness and trust in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And then Christian, there's a work to be done in us. Don't get frustrated. Boy, I missed a couple days of reading and praying. I should have done this. I, I did this and I should not have. Repent. Confess. 
and say, Lord, just like Peter, I stumble. Just like the disciples, I ask some dumb questions. I don't always get the full picture, but Lord, I'm seeing better than before I was saved. I'm seeing better than a couple years ago. I'm growing, and thank you for what you were, the work that you were doing in me. Let's stand. We're going to pray, and then we have one closing hymn. Let's stand. Gracious Lord, help us to see better. Remove all the things that obscure our view of your glory. A few months from now, people are going to get all excited about a, an eclipse. What we're praying is the opposite, that the things in the way would be removed so that we can see the sun. When we open your word, we want to have 20-20 vision. We must not be as those who see people as trees. Help us keep the focus of the need of their eternal soul. Help us see souls as souls. May the things of earth grow strangely dim while eternal truth comes better into focus every time we open your word. This spiritual myopathy that we talked about, it's a stubborn condition. This is no time to have nearsightedness of little faith. We rejoice over the assurance that James tells us, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So, Lord, make us sensitive to the need of the spiritually blind and make us ready to lead them to the Savior that we love and adore. Rebuke us for the times where we have kept this good news to ourselves and grow us in our witness for Christ today in whose name we pray, amen.